This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe, and I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered if you're actually an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it? Oh, boy. <laughs> How is this movie so romantic and philosophical and goopy? This movie, what, okay, what I love about this movie, and we're going to dive really deep into this, I'm sure. And folks, we're, we're talking about The Fly, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to know about that? <laughs> it's there in the title, but still, we'll say it. We'll say it aloud. All I want to say is that what I love about this film is that this is a film that you could look at through so many different lenses and mm-hmm. come to so many disparate conclusions about what the film is trying to say about everything and i love that yeah yeah um this is interesting terry have you seen the original or read the short story i've seen the original a long time ago when i was a kid okay i don't remember much about it i went to the wikipedia to kind of remind myself about it Mm -hmm. and i the only thing literally the only thing that stuck in my head was both the man with the the fly on his head and then The little fly with the human head stuck in a web with a spider coming on him, coming, Ooh. coming on him, coming after him. Like those are like, <laughs> sir. <laughs> hey, this movie is full of seminal fluids. So wow. let's just let's just rip that bandaid <laughs> off and dive right into those uh, goopy fingernails. No, that oh, is all boy. I remember about the the 1950s version. What about you? Okay, yeah, I haven't seen it. I've seen stills like you. I know that. The transformation happens early on, but I ended up watching this remake, the Cronenberg remake, with his audio commentary. So he talked a little bit about some of the creative decisions he made. Shockingly enough, it's an audio commentary. But one of the big things that he was most interested in was ensuring that Brundle would remain verbal for as long as possible. He really wanted the character to be able to walk the audience through the changes in the transformation and how he was feeling. That was a big part of what attracted him to the project in part because the original, he just has the fly head so he can't talk Mm -hmm. and you don't have any concept of what he's experiencing. Yeah. I think that's actually a very smart decision on Cronenberg's part. And I think that this might be the best remake I've ever seen. Ooh, okay. She's disregarding the thing, but okay. I, I am. I am disregarding the thing, a movie that I absolutely love and enjoy. I'm also mm-hmm. disregarding The Blob, which is one of my favorite movies of the 80s. Sir, the trifecta, though, is incredible. Like, I mean, right? This is one of those things where, I mean, we have so much to talk about with this movie, but just because we're on the topic of 80s remakes, Jesus Christ, practical effects for fucking ever with those three movies and they're all very goopy they're mm-hmm. all very um they understand the source material enough to kind of make almost a satire in some ways of the original in in yeah. a lot of cases but also sort of like tackle themes that were appropriate for the 80s mm-hmm. and so i do think that that was like the prime time for um for the for the movie remakes of the 50s because i think we had people that had like a punk rocket like mind that were going mm. to tackle things that might have been in the 50s a little 
you know, all American family and sort uh-huh. of take them in interesting and intriguing directions. And I love that about all three movies, but particularly the fly. It's true. I mean, if you look at the three of them, I think the fly, Ooh, don't kill me folks. I think the fly has the most to say about it its does. remake sort of update. Cause all of them have very interesting concerns about paranoia, the nature of transformation and yeah, the undermining of American society. But I think the fly manages to do that at both the micro and the macro level, right? Like it's very much about Seth Brundle, intrepid scientist who wants to boldly go where no teleportation person has gone before. And yet it's about so much more than that, right? Like it really does feel like an 80s time capsule of the priorities and preoccupations we were dealing with. Certainly. we. I mean, it tackles the idea of the nuclear family, which was, mm-hmm. you know, back with Reagan being president of the United Ugh. States was like this big thing on people's tongues. They wanted to re-embrace the 50s, which is another situation that we're dealing with in America right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like every few years, everyone's like, hey, we got to go back to those 50s. And I'm like, OK, the 50s were great for a very, very certain subset of the population and no one else. But also, that's bullshit nostalgia. And the 50s weren't actually like that either. This is an idealized version that never existed that never existed exactly and so um you know i i love that this movie tackles that abortion abortion absolutely you threw in um aids when we were ending last episode (laughs) yes you could easily take this as an aids metaphor um absolutely it's about romance it is about abusive relationships Mm -hmm. because i've always and this is something I, w- I wanted to talk about here because I have always seen this. Everyone was like, oh, such a romantic movie. And it is. It is. But also, I find we're following a character who leaves one abusive asshole and ends up with another one in a different way. Yeah, Just a different kind of abusive asshole. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was interesting about Cronenberg's audio commentary is he was recording it, I gather, in the mid 2000s because he said it had been 20 years since he had seen the final version of the film, which of course was released in 1986. So presumably he's recording it around 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I remember everything vividly. Like he could, he could remember anecdotes of experiences from that day when they were shooting on set, but he had forgotten about the emotional components. And the other thing that he remembers really vividly But he had also forgotten how complicated and interesting Stathis, that's the Gina Davis character's boyfriend slash former boss, is. And I mean, he's he's got a lot of praise for John Getz, like his performance and how he's able to stand up to Jeff Goldblum and and be Mm. an intimidating figure in this romantic triangle. But yeah, I mean, I always looked at Stathis as a bit of a shit heel. He's a bad boyfriend. He's a bad boss. He just gets what's coming to him. And Cronenberg has a lot of empathy for him. Um, you know, it's it's funny because it, when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I would watch it. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know like half of the things that it was, you know, talking about or doing. No. I just knew that the special effects were amazing totally didn't realize that he had his dick in the in the cupboard like there's all these things that i did not realize as a kid all i knew Mm -hmm. is that it was goopy and my dad was letting me watch it okay and i never really viewed stathis as anyone but a villain but i'll be perfectly honest Mm -hmm. 
as an adult, his relationship, he's still a villain. Let's let's be yeah. let's be honest. I don't think he is necessarily a good person. But what I do appreciate about the the script for this is that it allows him to be an empathetic person. It's a complicated relationship and I don't think if this movie was made today, he would just be the absolute worst and and Jeff Goldblum's character would be the absolute perfection who is, mm-hmm. you know, slowly dying from a fly. Right. And I feel like there's a lot of nuance in this movie that I appreciate more as as an adult. Yeah. And and that is one of the I mean, I was shocked because this film does not seem appropriate for children, but of course, we also <laughs> had a different relationship with what media we allowed children to consume back in the 80s so maybe that's not as big of a deal as i'm making it out to be but this does feel like such a text for adults right like the relationships are so adult and i love you're right that it is complicated it's not straightforward there are really no heroes in this text Except for Veronica, who is maybe the strongest female character that Cronenberg has created to date. Yeah, I would agree with that 110%. I think this is also my favorite of his movies to date. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not terribly surprised by that. This does feel like a new era of accessibility for Cronenberg, where he's telling a film, like, really, there has been no previous film that has a romance in it. You know, there's plenty of sex, but no romance. Yeah, and I I do think that that might be what calls to me for this film, because I I think that there is still a focus on the clinical nature of science. And we see some themes that he's exploring, that he has been exploring through his career up to this point. Mm -hmm. But what I think cements this as my favorite right now is that he, for once, is able to marry that with a very interesting and very empathetic and very romantic and steamy Mm -hmm. human story. And I don't feel like I've really necessarily gotten that with his previous films. And so this feels like a combination of like what he has done up to this point, but then adding a layer of human empathy that I honestly going through his his filmography up to this point, I was surprised had in him. Mm-hmm. Well, and what else is wild is that he's he's listed as a co-writer on this film, mm-hmm. right? So he petitioned to make sure that Charles Edward Pogue got equal billing as a screenwriter, even though he admits that he basically came in and rewrote all of the dialogue in this movie so everything you're hearing is entirely cronenberg but the situations and the developments like the overall foundation of the story belongs to pogue so that's why he wanted to make sure that this man got equal credit for the screenplay but when you look at that like there's a lot of time spent talking about feelings how do you feel how have you changed what have you gained and so on and so many of the previous Cronenberg protagonists have been not nonverbal, but they've been so guarded, so shielded. Like, you're right, it's all clinical and there's no emotionality to it. And that's the other piece that Cronenberg is surprised about when he revisits the film. He's like, <laughs> oh, people react so strongly to the emotional component, the romance in this movie. And I think he's almost taken aback because I believe he finds the other characters deeply interesting and they are, but I'm not always sure that he understood how difficult it was to invest in them. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about how I think he, that makes sense of, of, of you saying that about him because I do think he is much more interested in the, 
the brain side of mm-hmm. things than he is necessarily the heart side of things. Right. And so the fact that that surprised him is, I, I think that's that's a lovely thing for him to have experienced because mm-hmm. I think what makes this movie so great is being able to have both of those and being yes. able to satisfy people that want to go in and experience a doomed tragic romance, but also people that want to go in and see a man basically disintegrate in front of them and turn into, into a fly. Like it, it mm-hmm. satisfies the science, the the Frankenstein aspect of the story, the feeling. I, this movie reminds me of a modern day hammer film. Right. Okay. With the music, with everything like that. And so I think there's so much going on here. The science side, the history of, of horror that I feel that this movie is pulling from for aesthetics. And then also this, this tragic romance that is at the center of it. It just, it's like a perfect trifecta that I think works so incredibly well. Hmm. One other interesting thing that I don't know how much we've talked about it at all in the previous episodes. So when I posted that I was watching this, a friend of mine, Alex Heaney from the Seventh Row podcast, she was like, this movie is also deeply funny and people don't give Cronenberg yeah. enough credit for being funny. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like a lot of these situations, I think we get so mired in the body horror and just how devastatingly nihilistic a lot of the endings are. We overlook how darkly funny some of this is. And this movie, despite being an absolute romantic tragedy, is also wildly funny at times. Yeah, I, uh, I, I highlighted a bunch of things in my notes as I was going through it because like I love writing down dialogue that makes mm-hmm. me laugh and there was a lot of times in here that I was like this is this is quietly funny the mm-hmm. the moment when she shows up at his at his flat which by the way can we talk about um efficiency yes. of storytelling the fact that he just like goes they meet they have a meet cute and then mm-hmm. she's at his apartment and yep. we're starting the relationship there's no pretense mm-hmm. but when she gets there and he sits there and he's like, oh, no, now I can't let you leave here alive and plays a minor chord. Dun, dun, dun. I'm like, that's that's funny. This There's <laughs> moments of that that I'm like, this is quietly like it also works as sort of like foreboding for what's going to happen because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to let her leave here alive eventually. But like it's it's a very funny line. And there's a lot of these moments spread throughout here that I wasn't prepared for, to be perfectly right. honest. Yeah. I wonder how much of this is also based on the fact that Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum were dating in real life when they were shooting this. So initially, people didn't want to cast Gina Davis because they had difficulty finding their Seth Brundle. Like, if you look at the the who could have been situation for actors, it would have been very different films. But they had difficulty recruiting someone who could do the performance but was also willing to do this extensive makeup job. So when they land Jeff Goldblum, they realize, okay, now we've got this really arduous task of finding a woman who can be his equal, right? Because this is basically a 2.5 hander. Like, if you don't get these two leads right, there's nowhere to hide because all the special effects won't cover your ass if people don't care about this romance. (laughs) So apparently they were like, ugh. Gina Davis is really good, but we're worried about the fact that they're already dating because, you know, mm. it makes sense. But apparently when when they actually approached her, she was both excited but perfect for the role, obviously. But they had to then like walk back the nature of their relationship because they were so comfortable and they they would rebound off each other. They had all these in-jokes and Cronenberg was like, no, 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 you two don't know each other that well yet. <laughs> 
that I think that is so sweet, though. <laughs> I know. Also, what a gorgeous couple. I mean, they are. And he has never looked. I'm sorry. He's never looked better than he did in the fly. <laughs> oh, my God. Apparently, he was weightlifting a ton because this is sort of not early days in terms of male vanity. But the 80s is really when we start to do science fiction and action films differently, where we're really promoting yeah. the kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger meathead body. And... I gather that Jeff Goldblum felt not body conscious, but he wanted to look his best on screen. So he was working out a lot. And then David Cronenberg, seeing he was working out, also started to work out. So he said this is the only film of his career where he's lost weight during the production. Dang. I know, right? That's hilarious. <laughs> Seriously, audio commentaries, gold mines, folks. I, they really are. I wish I had watched the audio commentary now. I didn't realize there was one with, with him. That's that's amazing. So it, I think it's important to point out this has nothing to do with really the movie, but mm -hmm. in the intersection of Cronenberg and Lynch, mm -hmm. we have, not to use a pun, but a linchpin of <laughs> Mel Brooks. Because yes. When I realized that this was a Brooks film and that Mel Brooks produced this mm -hmm. and left his name off of it again because he didn't Always. want people to uh, consume that, consider this to be like one of his parodies or a comedy. And this is also the man that produced Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. We have the linchpin in our series. And that made go. me so ecstatic when I saw that last night. But honestly, of all the people that you would assume... I never would have guessed it would be Mel no, Brooks. Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah, apparently Mel Brooks was really instrumental in getting Cronenberg onto this because, of course, at the time, this is the other fun thing with the 80s is when you start to go into the history of who could have been doing what franchise. Apparently, Cronenberg couldn't have been considered for this initially because he was working on Total, Total Recall. Recall. Mm -hmm. What the fuck, Terry? Oh my god, could you imagine a Total Recall I, movie made by David Cronenberg? That would be amazing. Like, I enjoy, I really like Paul Verhoeven's take on it, but can, yeah. I cannot imagine what it would look like no. with Cronenberg. That would be so fucking amazing. I mean, I'm kind of glad he didn't because right? we wouldn't have we to get fly. This instead. Yeah. yeah. But, wow, it's amazing. Yeah. But apparently then, like, Mel Brooks is one of the people who really tried to champion him and say, okay, when Total Recall falls through and he's licking his wounds, Mel Brooks was kind of like, hey, you should really start to think about this. I think you'd be a good fit for it. That's so cool. That's so cool. So, Terry, let's talk a little bit about the visual aesthetic. We've definitely said goopy and drippy and all the fun things about body horror, but I wanted to... Just as a, a primer, because we spent so much time in the space, I think it's fascinating that Seth Brundle lives and works in the same Toronto warehouse. Yes, I uh, I think it's such a smart character moment for him, too, because when Veronica meets him and she's like, are you wearing the same clothes? And he's like, no, mm -hmm. I've, uh, I have the same suit laid out. So the fact that he doesn't have to spend any time whatsoever on thinking about his his uniform for the day, which he he says is an Einstein thing that he got. Mm -hmm. Now we have him living in the same place that he is working because for him, he even makes the comment when they first meet that, you know, he's like, I don't really have a life, so you're not going to be interfering with anything. And it's because mm -hmm. he doesn't. He is just science. He is he is mixing his life, which he doesn't really care about, and then his his passion, which he 
obviously is very passionate about. Right. And it's all in one, it's all in one little area. And I love, I, I don't know. I, I love the storytelling, the environmental storytelling that is happening with just that, just that little moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like there's a narrative plot point that comes out where we first start to see symptoms that he is changing after he goes through the teleportation machine with the fly. You know, the first telltale signs is that he develops a kind of rash on his face, but it's fairly subtle. Like Ronnie doesn't even notice it, but she does notice the hairs growing out of the wound in his back. And the only reason we have that in there is because when they fucked, he rolled over onto like a little circuit thing yeah. that he had left on the couch. And it's like, it's just such smart storytelling. It's telling us so really much is. about who he is as a man who's driven entirely by this passion for science. But then when he meets a woman who is a different kind of passion and they engage or consummate that the two intermix in this really interesting and also visually compelling way, because that's where we see the hairs coming out later. The line I wrote in my notes at the, at that point was long live the new flesh, right? Because here we have this idea of taking, and it's, it's continued to a horrific end by the end of this film, mm -hmm. but this idea of like technology and the human body, it's like right there, he rolls on it and he has like a circuit sticking out of him. Yeah. And so we have like this sort of transhumanism type aspect that is, that is going on in this, in this moment. And then we have like his, his idea that I have separated myself from life so much that maybe I don't understand flesh. And if I don't understand flesh, then the computer I'm working on isn't going to understand flesh. And so I must dive into flesh. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is, this is. It's video drums through and through. Yeah. But I feel like those are the kinds of things where like, even if you were going to see Cronenberg films in the theaters as he was releasing them throughout the 80s, this is three years removed from Videodrome. So it's not a short amount of time, but we weren't really in the ascendancy of VHS. So I don't know how accessible a film like Videodrome would have been. But nevertheless, it's three years later, and it feels like these two films are automatically speaking to one another. Like it's such a direct continuation, but in a completely new and novel way. Yes, absolutely. And I just I, I think, again, as I was as I was sitting there last night, that is another reason why I was like, I think this might be my favorite Cronenberg at this point, because, again, it is taking everything that he is that he has done previously. And I feel we are getting a 21st century Fox big budget, mm -hmm. you know, big studio film that he yep. is able to tackle and do right, <laughs> but also not lose what made him him. Right, and I think that's I think that's fantastic. And so, as a, as a kind of a call and answer to to um, Videodrome, I think this is a, a perfect next step. Yeah, it feels like a natural continuation, albeit without just repeating everything. And right. even mm -hmm. when you think about the end of this film, it's something Cronenberg says in the audio commentary, and I had to stop because I'd never even thought about it before. But this ending of this movie is almost identical to the Dead Zone. Oh, shit. Right? Like, basically, a man dies by suicide after he has been consumed by the work that had occupied everything, right? His raison d'etre. But he also does it either with the assistance or right in front of his love interest. And then we just immediately end the film. I I totally did not even put that together. And that's, that's wild. Oh, my right? goodness. 
but the the weirdest thing to me and sorry to jump all the way to the end of the film we'll we'll back up and talk about lots of other things but I have such a different reaction to the end of this movie. This feels so much more successful to me than The Dead Zone. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, 110%. <laughs> yeah, like not even. <laughs> There's no comparison. But I'm trying to remember. I'm also honestly trying to remember the ending of, of Videodrome because it's been a moment. But it also kind of reminded me a little bit of Videodrome. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a man dying by suicide. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So so we see these similar approaches, similar types of characters, similar drives and interests, but each of the stories ends up feeling uniquely their own. They stand independent, but they also work in conversation. Like, I feel like I've never seen a director whose work is so in conversation with itself. Like, I don't want to diminish what Cronenberg is doing because I do feel like each of the films are doing their own thing. But when you watch them in chronological order, like we've been doing, I just feel like I have such a greater appreciation for what he's doing, both as like a collective, but then also with individual titles. Yeah, I mean, I guess people frown at the word, but like, I think that's why he's like an auteur because he has like... I don't know. He has a point of view. And what I appreciate is that in these movies where he has more creative control over it, he is able to balance both the needs of being a commercial film, but also stuff that he is interested in. And so I I, I find I have found as we've gone through his films of him sort of like iterating on things that he was doing before, almost Mm -hmm. as if like this worked really well, but this didn't. So I want to try to do something a little bit different. And so I, I do think that watching his career from the beginning to this point has has made me appreciate everything that has gone into making this film be my favorite um, of his film so far. Because right. I can see that through line through it all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about these Academy Award winning special oh effects by Chris Wallace. Do you remember how you felt when you first watched the film or when you were watching the film for the 15th time as a child? I love special effects so much. And so the the goopy, the goopier they were, the better, which is probably why I watched the blob in this on repeat. Mm-hmm. And I do remember the thing that really stuck in my head is the ending where he is vomiting onto Stathis's oh arm gosh. and his leg it's and then so getting good. his <laughs> head blown up. Exactly. It is so good. Like, those are the things that I remember the most. I didn't remember so much. I, I guess I didn't linger on his uh, the actual body horror of him pulling out his fingernails and whatnot, although mm-hmm. I don't know how I could have not thought about that because it is gnarly. It, it is. was mostly just sort of like the the last half of the film that really... The, the third act, I think, in particular, mm-hmm. is probably <laughs> what I remember the most of as a kid. Yeah, I mean, naturally, if you're a child, you're going to latch on to the gross-out special effects, and that's it's the majority of the third act. But yeah, I mean, watching this as an adult, we should clarify. Uh, David Cronenberg is very much on the record as saying that he looks at this as an example of what happens when you become older. So your body Mm. doesn't respond the way that you expect. It doesn't do the things that you used to be able to do. And that's alarming, right? And like, you can kind of catalog it, you get out of bed, and something has changed overnight, and suddenly your body's different. That's scary. And then of course, Terry, you and I 
and other queer people look at this and say, I don't know how you look at a movie that came out in 1986 that has a person disintegrating and then dying without looking at the specter of AIDS. Uh, absolutely, particularly with the way that it is framed, because we have this man who is obviously he mentions he's unaware of the flesh. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't quite get the understanding that that maybe he's had a lot of girlfriends. You don't really right. know. But the fact that he is very focused on his work is very focused on. I mean, to the to the degree that he will have a, a closet full of the identical suits so he doesn't have to think about life. All he mm-hmm. has to think about is his is tinkering with this this toy. And then we have him meet a woman, and then he ends up having sex. And that is when things start to <laughs> immediately disintegrate. Yeah. And so it's really hard to look at that as someone who is, he feels relatively sexless. He's very attractive, but he seems very sexless. Right. And then finally embracing flesh in order to... I mean, in his mind, in order to fix the computer, but embracing flesh and then having a whole lifestyle change where we see him in scenes later where he's actually wearing something not <laughs> his suit. Mm-hmm. And so we have like him embracing humanity and then getting this. At one point, it is called bizarre form of cancer, which, of course, yeah, the gay cancer was what they were calling AIDS initially. It was a bizarre form of cancer. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to not think that maybe at least subconsciously that thought was in the head, even though he says mm-hmm. that it was about aging. Yeah. And and for the record, he's not opposed to that reading. It's just not mm-hmm. his intent when he was making right. the film. But as you said, I, I imagine particularly in that moment, if you're making this movie in 85, releasing it in 86, that is literally at the height of the crisis. So... It's hard not to believe that it wasn't at least on his mind or he would have been aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk a little bit more about Ronnie because I feel like the movie sometimes gets overshadowed by like, really, we're watching Seth's disintegration over the course of the film, and it's really challenging. And you could make the argument, I have seen some people make the argument that Veronica starts off very strong. She's got a, a good backbone to her. She doesn't take shit from men. She's very aggressive about her career. She's just as driven as Seth is to pursue her interests. And then she becomes not a bystander, but she becomes a caretaker, an almost mother figure. Like she's a, a lover mother figure for him as he goes through this. And I can see that, but I also emphatically disagree with it i don't think she ever loses that agency it just becomes different yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to think of how i want to answer that because i Mm -hmm. i do agree i think her agency changes and i think that might be where a lot of people might see her as losing agency because she's still she still is in control of her life like she wants she decides that she wants to have this abortion Right. Mm-hmm. And that is it's really weird watching a movie set in the 80s about abortion when what is going on in the United States right now. But yep. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> is this where I just point out, oh, it's a Canadian text. We've, we've <laughs> never had the same issues. <laughs> Quiet. <laughs> I did see that um, that Canada was put out a, uh, a warning for their LGBTQ folk to not go to the United States in mm-hmm. that 
I mean, it's yeah, it's accurate. But regardless, she she's the one that decides that she wants to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And we see the characters sort of well, we see Stathis sort of trying everything in his power to help, which I think is where like the little bit of empathy for me starts to like come in. Yeah, because like he gets that thing set up super quick, but Mm -hmm. she does up and even up till that moment. And that is like the lead into the the final climax of the film, she is still has her agency over her body. And that's something mm-hmm. that I think the movie does really interesting is because Seth is losing his agency of his body and yes. she is in control of hers the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can't have a conversation about one character without putting in the other half of the equation because they work as a pair as the film progresses right like they start as individuals but as you said they hook up so quickly he seems not lost but he's a little boy until he meets her right like he's got that cocky charm to him but he doesn't seem very comfortable around women and it does seem like he'd prefer to just be in his lab doing his experiments and then this hot chick suddenly takes uh, an interest in him and he becomes obsessed right like i love that his downfall is his jealousy he thinks that she's fucking status and he gets drunk and he decides i'm gonna prove what a superstar rock star scientist i am and that's when he goes through drunkenly with the fly you're like that's your fucking hubris but as the film progresses, I mean, yeah, I think that the middle section where he's really starting to disintegrate and she's having to come in and she looks so worried and upset. I could see people reading that as, oh, she's losing her agency. I read that as she's learning that there's more to it than that. Like there's the romance that I don't think she fully anticipated. Like she starts this off as he's a project. I can work this guy. And then she realizes, oh, no, I've fallen in love with him. And then the abortion is the start of the upswing where all of a sudden she can't trust either of these two men. She needs to take control of her body and get the abortion because she doesn't want to have to deal with whatever might be in there. But also by this point, Seth has lost his mind. He's basically Brundlefly entirely. Mm. And he wants to put her in that fucking pod with the baby so that they can all merge and become a perfect family. And it's like, nope buddy this cannot happen like i need to remain my own individual and i love that she also like she ultimately ends up being the one to kill him he moves the gun into position but she ultimately has to be the one who pulls the trigger and put him down i think that's really powerful like it's it's an act of humanity to euthanize someone but also she recognizes what she needs to do to protect herself. Yeah. You made a comment earlier about Seth sort of being a little boy. And I, again, I think this is one of the things that I really appreciate about this text is that you could look at what he's going through as, as a stage of puberty, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's getting, he's getting hairs where they shouldn't be before, or, you know, (laughs) he's getting a pimply face and he is, he is, having sex and he is going for hours and he Mm -hmm. is like he is very virile and it's like and i I guess this is why i think i could see what what cronenberg is saying about it being about age because he is going very quickly through a bunch of different stages of adulthood up to the point when he's like having to use canes to walk around Mm -hmm. like we're we're seeing 
a condensed version of a man's life play out before our eyes. And I think that's what is so fascinating about this, because, again, that is just one way of looking at this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I just I I think it's neat. Yeah, and especially through a contemporary lens, we could look at this as you you referenced it earlier. This is different types of abusive or neglectful romantic relationships, right? Like if you want to look at it through that lens of romance, look at how Ronnie has to deal with two very different but also surprisingly similar kinds of men. Because I remember the first time I saw The Fly, it wasn't until just a couple of years ago. So I saw this as an adult for the first time. And I fucking hated Stathis. And I was mm. irate at the suggestion that she might still be with him at the end of the film. <laughs> and I think that's really important and really complicated because there are, as we said, there's no good guys in this movie. There's just different kind of uh, maybe asshole kind of guys. And that also feels very true to life. Yeah. And on top of that, I, again, thinking about the different ways that you can interpret this text, we have a situation where we have a man who has not embraced flesh and then he does. And what does flesh do? It's, it's stated in this movie. It makes you crazy. Mm -hmm. The idea that like, I I just want to eat you up for the little babies. Like the flesh makes people crazy. And it's that, that moment then when they've both have have when both him and Stathis have had um, carnal relations with Veronica, that they both get jealous. The moment Early on in the film, when she is talking with Stathis and she says, I'm filing onto something big, huge. And he says, yeah, his cock, like the jealousy that <laughs> is <so> just petty. <laughs> emanating from it. It is it is very petty. And then what happens later? It's Steph who thinks that she is running off to go fuck Stathis. And mm-hmm. that is the jealousy. And so you could look at it as like a scientist who finally gives into to flesh and to mm-hmm. sex and goes crazy with jealousy. And I, I so I think that there's like a, an interesting tension there between him being the sort of I mean, let's be honest, his character has has been like reused throughout time of like the, sure. the scientist, the, the kind of scientist that is unable to understand humanity. But mm-hmm. here we get a fuller picture because he does learn to understand humanity. It just makes him incredibly jealous. Right. And as you said, it does feel like we're watching a life cycle, which is all the more interesting when you think about, oh, we're literally doing body horror with an insect that has a condensed or an abbreviated lifespan. So Mm. the fact that he burns bright and then dies is so interesting when you're thinking about that lifespan or that life cycle of both humans and insects. Yeah. Speaking of of the entire life cycle, have you ever seen The Fly Part 2 or The Fly 2? So I have not. I have heard about it. It sounds like a messy bitch. It is a very messy bitch. I watched it last night because I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch it. Mm-hmm. And it is... um. It is something else. <laughs> <laughs> we should note it was made without Cronenberg's involvement, and I don't think he cares for it. He does not. And it was directed by Chris Wallace, who did, of course, right, the, the special, special effects. effects for this. For this. Okay. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we lose a lot of the character humanity, but we don't lose a lot of the effects. You would think that, but here's the thing. I don't okay. think the effects are that good. Oh, no. <laughs> What's the selling feature then, Terry? 
I don't I, I I'm not 100 percent sure that I have one, except Eric Stoltz's performance is incredibly intense. Right. And he's ooh, how naked is he? I mean, what? Who asked that? What? <laughs> um, well, he he does have he does have his Go- Jeff Goldblum moment in the telepod. OK, it's interesting because it is it is following some similar motifs that this uh, movie establishes. We follow their son because mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea is that Gina Davis's character, Veronica, um, dies in childbirth. Oh, of course. Yes. And gives birth to a insect uh, sack like weird Mm -hmm. sack thing that they tear open and there's a perfectly natural baby in there. And the baby starts to grow up within like five years. He is basically 25 years old. And so we have like this extended, this very quick paced life. And so he falls in love with someone that it's princess Vespa from, um, space, space balls. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Daphne Zuniga. Yeah. And it, it tackles, it tackles some similar issues to this one. And it's not a bad B movie, but okay. it feels as if the special effects have taken a huge. So Christopher Wallace got his start doing special effects for Roger Corman pictures. And so he oh. sort of came up in the, in the B horror movies. He worked on humanoids okay. from the deep. And then I think Piranha, he also worked on. Okay. I love those movies. Yeah, and so, but we have like that sort of B movie vibe in those, mm-hmm. and I feel as if if you were to take away the fly part two, and just have it be a generic, weird monster movie, right? From the eighties, people might appreciate it a little bit more because it's not terrible. It's just you can't yeah. go from Cronenberg to mm-hmm. this. <laughs> it's always the problem, right? You know, they want to capitalize on the familiar IP, especially when the movie does so well, like this one does. But then you're inviting comparisons to a better product because you're making a schlocky B picture. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, no. it can only look like a step down when people start to compare the two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it just really heightened how much I love this movie. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, Well, this has been high. I'm excited to see how you feel about Dead Ringers, which will be our next Cronenberg title, because that one, honestly, we're going to make a lot of the same comparisons because it's about (laughs) a scientist who engages in sex and then loses his fucking mind, only double it because it's identical twins. (laughs) So that'll be interesting. But I do think it's a little bit more cold antiseptic, kind of like the previous Cronenberg films. So... So, uh, but I, I am curious, Joe, because um, as I have said, this is my favorite up till now of Cronenberg's. Where does this rank mm-hmm. for Cronenberg films for you? Um, Because hmm. I have a lot more history with it than you do. This is true. Yeah. I didn't want to say, ooh, Terry, you're colored by nostalgia. But I do think that because you've seen this a couple of times and you did see this at a younger age, I think this one was always going to go down a little bit more smoothly for you, which is not to dismiss anything you've said, but I can understand why you feel the way you do about it. For me, I just, I have such a soft spot for the brood Mm -hmm. that I think just because of where the brood is positioned in his career, to me, it really is the start of when he begins to tell more personal, more emotional emotionally driven stories it's the start of that i don't think it's his most successful venture but it's where we see the shift from entirely experimental independent fuck you kind of cinema into ooh, i'm still doing my own thing but also making movies that 
regular people could hypothetically watch and enjoy. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Brood would be up there for me too, by the way. Like Brood okay. and this and then Videodrome, I think are my favorites so far. Makes sense. Okay. But yeah, we'll have to leave the Cronenberg side of the pod behind for a little while so we can hop back to Mr. Lynch. And folks, this is where we're going to wrap up the TV show of Twin Peaks, at least for now. So we're going to jump back in for season two, episode seven, Lonely Souls. It's, of course, directed by David Lynch. And this is the episode that will reveal the killer of Laura Palmer. Finally. (laughs) you say it but (laughs) Uh, yeah so terry you and i have some tv watching to do before the next episode but this will be an interesting one i think i teased it the last time we talked about lynch but this has a sequence that i do not know how they got it past censors maybe one of the scariest things i've ever seen on what would have been network tv wow i'm excited it is harrowing, but we also have to get through all of the other Twin Peaksy bullshit that you've not been enjoying. <laughs> so <laughs> I hate to say. I mean, here's the thing. The show has a lot of defenders. It's got a lot of passionate people, but it never should have been a show that was this widely embraced because I just think it's a show for weirdos and that's perfectly fine, but it's not going to be for everybody. Yeah. 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 That, that's more for your benefit, Terry. So um, <laughs> all this to say, we, we just have to watch a few more and then you can get that reveal and then we'll be able to move on. But also we will have Firewalk with me on the horizon to look forward to. But it's not where we go immediately. So you get a bit of a breather. Hey, I'm actually looking forward to Firewalk with me. I've heard good oh. things. It's going to be wild. <laughs> all right. Well, until we come back to figure out the laura palmer murder reveal i guess i don't know i would say don't work with baboons because that thing looked fucking scary where is he getting those baboons by the way like shady i was seriously wondering where he got these baboons because what a what if an expensive and large animal to um run tests on yeah yeah We didn't talk about it, but there is a deleted scene where he does the baboon and a cat, and it is incredibly fucking disturbing. I heard about that scene. I I have not seen. Is there is there like clips of it? Oh, it's a full on sequence. Like they've got the finished special effects and everything. I don't think it looks quite as good as everything else in the rest of the film, but apparently they cut it because he looks almost gleeful when he does it, and it's really hard to continue to feel sympathy for the plight of seth after that because he just seems like a monster yeah i mean trying to combine two animals you're in dr moreau territory that hundred not gonna make you no it's not gonna make you liked <laughs> no and it it turns out possibly worse than you could imagine i'm gonna have to go watch this video Hmm. yeah yeah seek it out folks it is hella disturbing but um yeah i'll, I'll leave you with that little gem what a gem (laughs) the anatomy of a scream pod squad